0: Hi, everybody, welcome to the 3 p.m. edition of the Monday Webinar Series in New York Workers' Compensation. Today is November 18th, and we are ten days away from Thanksgiving. So what are we going to discuss today other than Thanksgiving? How do attorneys review cases for exposure analysis? It's a huge, huge thing that whenever you have a claim, you want to know how much it's worth. And this iteration of this webinar has always been determined on whether the claim had already been accepted, right? So when we talk about schedule loss of use and loss of wage earning capacity, we have assumed that the case is established. Here we're going to talk about the procedural posture of the case and how that affects your exposure calculation. Then we're going to talk about decision points within the life of a claim that can either increase or decrease the value. Of course, we're still going to talk about schedule losses of use and loss of wagering capacity because that is going to be the driver of the indemnity exposure once a claim is accepted or established. But of course, Q&A is available to everyone. It's a live presentation. Please ask questions. That's uh, the question box that everybody is now familiar with. If you're not, that means you're new to the webinar series. So let me introduce you to our wonderful program. Okay, so. If we're thinking about whether a case is admitted or denied, the value of the claim should not be the same, right? So let's consider a denied claim. We're going to talk about our legal and factual defenses. And the trial outcome is going to be the positional decision point that talks about whether the claims exposure will go up or down. But before we get to that trial outcome, you should have an idea of how much the claim is worth and value it based on the strengths of the defense. After the trial outcome, your settlement analysis should reflect whether the claim is disallowed, accepted, established, or somewhere in between. Maybe some body parts are established and some are disallowed, or some surgeries are authorized and some are not. Contrast that with the claim that's admitted, right? We then ultimately pivot very quickly to average weekly wage and prior accidents or injuries. And these are because these types of fact patterns are really going to either push a claim to exposure or a valuation, and then allow you to make an informed decision, right? Average weekly wage, we want to defend against multiples. We want to defend against the use of similar worker. We want to defend wage expectancy so aggressively from the very beginning because it avoids the outcome that we least want, and that's the added exposure at the end of the claim when we're not expecting it. We also talk about medical indemnity. That's a very obvious, obvious precursor towards exposure of an accepted or established claim. In here, it's more about the litigation decision point at every step, right? How are we defending against surgeries? Are we doing them timely? Is there a process? Do we have the right doctors performing IMEs? On the indemnity side, is there an opportunity to litigate degree of disability and provide a defense of labor market attachment or a light duty offer to bring the claimant back to work? But what we don't often see is an analysis of risk transfer. And by risk transfer, we mean Section 29 reimbursement loss transfer through arbitration, subrogation. These are avenues that we are starting to see provide more of a bottom line uh, favor to to really the claim and, and understanding that that is going to be the biggest impact point that we don't see until sometimes after the claim is even closed. All of that dovetails into an overall settlement analysis. You are starting to see from lowest attorneys a risk transfer analysis in their Section 32 exposure analysis because the presence of a third party claim will ultimately decrease your bottom line. So let's talk about that denied case, right? The case status comes in, right? And we provide you with the factual and legal defenses, right? The intake and client relations team here at Lois provides you with that analysis from the get go. We also talk to you in the legal action plan about the judge who's assigned to the claim, the venue of the claim, and our opposing counsel. And that's important because we need to know the likelihood of moving these defenses across the finish line. How likely are they to permit certain procedural uh, arguments or certain substantive arguments that would allow us to create a percentage chance of success for your claim? Witness credibility is probably the most important decision point within the track because any argument is only an argument if a witness can substantiate it, right? So unrelated wage loss, uh, whether the accident occurred, whether it was in the course of employment, we can be the best attorneys in the world. But if you don't have a witness from the employer to substantiate our proofs, then the defense will not win the day. So. The early defend from day one strategy and getting those people out in front will help you decide whether the decision point of a witness credibility impacts the likelihood that your defenses succeed and thereby increases or decreases the exposure on your claim. Post-trial actions are certainly important. They're more akin to an admitted or accepted established claim. But in actuality, for a denied claim that goes to trial, Even if the judge were to establish that or authorize a surgery, the post-trial actions, namely appeal and other things that we can do to substantiate what happens at trial, whether it be surveillance, IMEs, and the like, can impact the exposure of the claim. How likely is it do you find an error in fact or law that you can produce to the board panel? Can you withhold, suspend, or reduce benefits during the pendency of that appeal? All of those things go into the nature of providing updated exposure analyses for your claim. In an admitted case, as we discussed, it's a little different, right? So when we talk about average weekly wage and prior accidents, again, from the outset, we are going to tell you what the average weekly wage should be and what we're going to do to defend against multiples, similar workers, and wage expectancy. Priors is a huge topic. How often? Do you have an ISO that has disclosure of prior accidents that involve the same body parts? Similarly, how often are C3s completed without the section on prior injuries even completed? These are necessary items to consider when we're discussing an action plan. How likely is it can we move a case to a failure to prosecute standard as opposed to getting it on the expedited calendar and litigating without an informed set of facts. We did talk about medicals indemnity, if you remember that chart with the decision trees coming down. And medicals indemnity, to go even further, we want to litigate degree of disability whenever possible. Please do not be afraid to to avoid stipulation of tentative rates. This has an impact that's not seen until the end of the claim. And this is because... The claimant's attorneys, if they are ready to litigate permanency, it's not going to prevent them from litigating prior awards of temporary disability. You want to get as many fixed periods of benefits in temporary status as possible to prevent litigation on the back end. As for medicals, all of those decision points with indemnity have an effect on the medical. How much the claimant is making an in indemnity is going to affect how much he's going to the doctor. How much... Medical is being denied should affect your MSA. Being as aggressive early and often creates that actionable point later on down the road when you're asking for a settlement analysis from us and you have a demand that isn't in line with how the case has gone. Now, we did talk about where the judge is, who the judge is. That's important too. We know how virtual hearings have actually provided our firm with an ability to go before judges that we haven't. Usually set foot across. It's actually gone reverse. Sometimes judges who will usually appear in upstate hearing points are now appearing in the Manhattans, the Queens, and the Brooklyns of the world, giving us access to who they are, how they like to rule, and what kind of camaraderie we can develop with them so we can give you a more informed analysis of who the case or how, who the case is before and how they're going to rule. The opposing counsels largely don't change. most of them, players that we know, right? People that when they know they're up against us, they know they're in for a difficult fight and they may treat us a little bit differently in court because we are, we are being aggressive from the start. And risk transfer is something that we're going to get into in a, a future slide. But as I mentioned, subrogation, loss transfer, and section 29 reimbursement are things that we need to start looking at early so that they aren't surprises in the end. Now, we had post-trial actions for denied claims, and we talked about how mostly they react. They, they are really in reference to uh, appeals, surveillance, and IMEs. But what about post-trial actions in accepted claims? Are our, our C240s for the right people? Are we taking care to make sure that we're not providing a similar worker when it's not necessary or providing a multiple when it's not necessary? Or what about responding to C4 auths or MG2s? There's so much deadline specific decisions that are made in response to surgery requests that with litigation may get you out of that table. And the more you can litigate early, the more likely it is you're going to be able to settle. If you keep losing in litigation or keep deciding to stipulate to tentative rates or simply authorize invasive surgeries, the claimant is less likely to want to come to work. And those are the situations that we see claim exposures going up because the claimant has all the leverage to proceed with a loss of wage earning capacity or a high schedule loss of use. So speaking of that, how do we assess, how do we assess permanent exposure in a schedule loss of use case? Well, we know that range of motion and all of its terribleness is part of the calculation. Right. How often or how much can a claimant extend a limb past a certain point? It's a very subjective moment in the case when we are now strung along for a claimant who's completed his physical physical therapy, done very well, maybe is even earning wages higher than they were pre-accident at a new job, doing more duties and now comes in with that 40% schedule loss of use because 90 degrees of abduction uh, is now a passive uh, decision. Well, the way we wanna litigate that is to actually look at those physical therapy records, to actually look at potential duties that the claimant is doing while they're working to confront claimant's doctors and even inform the IME doctors correctly about why those doctors should not simply abide by what the claimant is doing in front of them. It's important to note that any kind of rebuttal to what how the claimant presents him or herself not only reduces a scheduled loss of use exposure claim, but also presents an avenue for fraud. This sheet on the right is exactly what we're talking about, a percentage correlated with a range of motion is something that we want to necessarily avoid, and one thing that we do here is actually discredit the actual percentage that's correlative to the range of motion finding. So you don't always want to accept, on blind faith, even the IME's range of motion calculation. If the calculation is correct, it should be attributable to a certain percentage, but that's not always the case. Please be sure to ask your friendly counsel to tell you when this is incorrect. Now, the chart here in this slide has to do with the normal healing period and one that can present that surprise factor at the end of the claim if we're not careful. So if we go down the list, the arm has a normal healing period of 32 weeks. So approximately eight months is when the state determines that you should have a healed arm. However, if you are found to have a total disability by the board, for longer than 32 weeks, then you will get a bonus at permanency. That's called a protracted healing period. The excess weeks over the normal healing period become your bonus weeks attached to your Scheduled Loss of Use Award. And although you still get to take credit for prior payments, it's that figure that you may not be aware of when you're litigating temporary degree of disability. In actuality, as always, The directive should be to litigate temporary degree of disability and get you out of those temporary total periods. As we know, loss of wagering capacity is a different beast, and this timeline across the bottom of the slide really illustrates that. First, we need an MMI finding, and we know that unless the claimant is actually motivated to settle his or her case, the MMI finding is going to come from an IME. So an IME that finds MMI is not gonna get you across the timeline as far as you'd think. We would need to get the claimant to produce a medical report on permanency. That would be directed at a hearing. And we can expect that the medical report produced by the claimant isn't going to agree with our friendly IME. That's the nature of the business. Either they don't agree at all, or that the claimant has reached MMI, or they agree that MMI has been reached, but there's a different severity of the permanent injury. And when that difference is in play, the issue is now joined, and litigation has to ensue with medical testimony between the two doctors. So now you have the impairment ratings, and you get to step two, which is functional ability. Now, functional ability is very rarely pursued because both doctors are just dealing with the medical permanent injury, but functional ability is slightly different. How often can the claimant actually perform the activities of daily living as discussed by either doctor? A severity ranking, for example, a lot of times discusses the presence of objective testing with subjective complaints, compression signs, stability, diagnostic testing, any sense of radiculopathy. A lot of that is not really engaged with the finding of functional ability. So how do we present a claimant to be more functionally able than how he's being presented at the doctor? Surveillance, prior accidents, all the all the medicals that we can produce that show the claimant similar to where he is now, but before the accident show that his pre-accident functional ability is still the same. Those are a lot of things that then help you get to step three because LWEC is not decided until vocational factors are assessed of the claimant. So where are your personnel files from the employer? Where are your resumes and your disciplinary records and your FMLA and short-term disability leaves that showcase exactly what the claimant can or can't do during the course of a job before workers' compensation even starts? The vocational aspects sometimes can't be litigated to a certain extent, Uh, Someone who is 80 years old is not going to be argued the same way as someone who's 25, right? Their ability to be be retrained and engage in vocational rehabilitation is different. But for vocational factors, we do have the opportunity to discredit what the claimant is saying by preparing early. And all of that gets you to a loss of wage earning capacity. To demonstrate the exposure of that, A 1% loss of wage earning capacity is subject to 225 weeks of benefits. And if it's the minimum rate at $150 per week, that is a gross value of $33,750. The approximate value of that at a discount rate is in the $30,000 to $31,000 range. That is the nature of an LWEC claim and really reinforces how we have to be aggressive early and often before you get to that point. Okay, so considering venue and opposing counsel, getting a lot of questions about how virtual hearings has affected this. And yes, it's not the same to go to a court and be able to work things out on a settlement basis with an adversary who's there. But what we've actually countered that with is pre-hearing actions by phone and email that still work the same way. Most settlements are actually reached over the phone and through email. The whole idea that a settlement is verbally agreed to doesn't work because there's going to be paperwork that's following that conversation anyway. So the idea that settlements are going to be affected by virtual hearings is really just a myth we've settled. The same amount of cases, likely even more with virtual hearings, but each of our attorneys are allowed less windshield time, more time in the office to work on your files and push that. And that's how we know we can value claims with the right, with the proper venue and the proper opposing counsel, knowing their strengths and weaknesses in each situation to value the claim correctly for you. Okay, two other slides have risk transfer. This is the third. It probably is a sign that this is an important thing. And it is so third party action potential reimbursement subrogation. That is where we want to focus the uh, subject of this webinar, because initially reimbursement and Section 29 uh, issues are usually dealt with when the claimant's third party attorney has an opportunity to settle. And the problem with that is that most of those times Those issues are dealt with after a workers' compensation claim has been closed. But we don't have to look at that as a definite circumstance. By using subrogation tools, by using loss transfer for certain motor vehicle accidents, certain claims have the ability to be analyzed and valued before the claim reaches a Section 32 settlement in ways that they aren't usually valued. So knowing what you can recover in loss transfer, knowing what you can recover in a Section 29 reimbursement because subrogation is possible, is definitely better for claims handling from an attorney's perspective and surely for the adjuster to know what the actual bottom line is. So that's really our focus for today, is lumping all the things from day one to get you to day end, 365, today, whenever that is so that you can value a claim from a more informed basis and actually give yourself more facts to work with. The more you have, the more concrete and solid your valuation will be. So what do we do here at Lois? Within seven days of referral, you get a legal action plan and it's got a great settlement analysis. The purpose of that settlement analysis is to prepare you, right? So to prepare you, how much will should this claim be worth and how? What is the strength of your arguments within either an accepted or a denied claim? Because that values the claim in a different way than what we're used to, right? No longer do the uh, schedule loss of use guidelines allow you to say that a rotator cuff tear is 10 to 15 percent at minimum. That's actually out of the schedule loss of use guidelines that rotator cuff tears get that automatic number. The board is actually transitioning to making this a case-by-case analysis, which is a nerd like me. That's just a dream. We can actually value the case on a customized basis, give you that bespoke service that you've always been asking for, and during the case lifecycle, talk to you about the decision points within that case that either increase or decrease the value of the claim. This is a live presentation. I see some questions coming up, and I'm happy that there are some attendees that uh, didn't attend uh, the 12 p.m. webinar, but this is what's coming in 2020. And that's the impact of a temporary benefit credit. Now, in April 2017, accidents started happening just like they have always been. The only difference is that once that two and a half year mark of benefits or lost time accrues, there's a credit available to employers and carriers. It is a big deal because it devalues a loss of wage earning, earning capacity claim. And if the exposure analysis can be curtailed with the use of a credit subject to certain exceptions, that will be your driving point to extend authority to a claim's true value. And we're not valuing things based on just a 50% loss of wagering capacity because the claimant had a back sprain. It's important to know that so that you're not surprised in the end. Okay. So I think I got this through pretty quickly. We're going to go to some questions and see if anybody has any. Okay. And Marie is asking, what is the normal healing period? How do they decide that? The uh, normal healing period is actually decided by statute and statutes were decided long before I was born. Uh, I don't understand why an arm needs eight months to heal, but that's how it is. And ultimately knowing that gives you the predictability. Right? If you know that a temporary totally temporary total disability cannot be awarded for that 33rd week otherwise giving you back end exposure, you want to litigate that in weeks two, three, four, 10, 20. Okay, Tom asks what is the best way to provide functional ability? That's actually a good question. So what we want to do is make use of of functional capacity evaluations in New York workers' compensation. As long as we're willing to pay for the cost of those exams, we can use them in addition to an an IME finding MMI or for the IME to review as a basis for commenting on permanent impairment. Now, FCEs are truly only payable once a claimant has reached MMI, but if we're willing to voluntarily pay for those costs, those types of strength testing, motor testing, all of those tests actually contribute to a claimant's functional ability outside of those things that may be more difficult. And the implied nature of your question understands that getting internal surveillance, uh, getting external surveillance can be difficult to show the claimant is more functionally able than he or she truly is. Okay, and that looks that looks like it for today. So I wanted to thank everybody for attending. Uh, I can give a quick shout out to the Third Friday's podcast that was published last Friday, which is a 201 level discussion of analyzing a claim from day one to day end. And my guest for that was Christopher Major. I'm sure he'd be happy that you're hearing his voice as well. But my name is Christian Cisan, and I'm reminding you to defend from day one.